Before you go to bed tonight, drink a glass of this and surprise. out there in video uh, form of the experience we had at Mennonite World Conference's 17th Global Assembly uh, held in Indonesia just last month uh, in early July. So Judy and I are going to share uh, a, bit of, a bit differently today. I'm going to talk maybe bigger picture about MWC as this global community of faith uh, and also a few snapshots from my own experience. What you see on the screen here is MWC's vision statement, which I really like, about being linked together as a communion, a community of faith in the Anabaptist tradition. And it's for a purpose. It's for fellowship, worship, service, and witness. So what happens at a Mennonite World Conference assembly? Well, this next image is one thing that happens. You meet people that you haven't seen for 20 years. Uh, this is Mama Colette Kuvingila from Gungu in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And when Anne and I worked there 20 years ago, uh, Mama Colette worked for an organization that MCC partnered with. So little did I know that Mama Colette would be a delegate from the Mennonite Brethren Church in Congo to the General Council. MWC is a global organization. This next slide shows you uh, how many churches are part of it globally, how many languages are spoken, how many countries. Uh, it really is a global church. More than two million people in the world today are part of the broad Anabaptist movement. Now, uh, only 1.4 million of those are part of churches which are members of Mennonite World Conference. And let me show you. One of these maps is put out uh, every time that an MWC assembly is held, normally every six years. Uh, this year, this time it was seven years because of COVID. Um, I hope we can find a place to post this, as we have in the past in the congregation, to give you a sense of where Anabaptist sisters and brothers are around the world. There are 10 North American member churches, by the way, of uh, Mennonite World Conference. One of them is Mennonite Church USA, our own uh, denomination and the Indonesian hosts for the assembly were the three Mennonite synods there, the GITJ, the GKMI, and the JKI. So what else happens at Mennonite World Conference assemblies? Well, you meet someone from your own congregation. So you don't have to go all the way around the world. Uh, this was in a lobby of the main hotel. Uh, Judy will talk more about her experience and her work there. The, uh, the man behind me uh, his name is Tungu Wulung, and I'll say a bit more about him in a moment. He's a very important person in the history of the Mennonite churches uh, in Indonesia. And if you'd like to read more about the Mennonite churches in Indonesia, John Roth wrote a book late last year called A Cloud of Witnesses, Celebrating Indonesian Mennonites. If we don't have that in our library yet, we should get it, and I'd encourage people to read it. The next slide just talks a little bit about the structure of Mennonite World Conference. Uh, just to give you a sense, this is an organization that has a life between assemblies. In fact, that's one of MWC's challenges, as many people think of Mennonite World Conference as this once every six years assembly. 
uh, and there's a lot of work that goes on all the time uh, from the different structures, uh, and these are the governance structures of MWC officers, executive committee representing the entire world, and finally the general council, which met in person in Indonesia. What else happens at an MWC assembly? Well, uh, what I would call is radical hospitality. Now, I'm glad you can see this image pretty well. We arrived at our satellite location. Staff and other volunteers were sent from the main location in Salatiga, uh, Indonesia, on the island of Java, to satellite communities to worship with local congregations. This is the local Margo Kerto congregation. Uh, my group of uh, folks who are part of this satellite group were hosted at this location. And you can see the kind of radical hospitality we received even upon arrival. And as a matter of fact, this scarf that I'm wearing was a gift uh, from people in that community, a locally made uh, hand-woven uh, scarf. And so we read about hospitality and radical hospitality and humility and hospitality in our passages in Hebrews and Luke today and we experienced that in Indonesia. The General Council, as I said, met uh, during our time there. Um, you can see some of the business they worked on there, uh, a declaration on conscientious objection, a report on baptism, part of discussion between Lutherans and Catholics and Mennonites. We accepted two new national member churches to bring the total number to 109 around the world, one from the Democratic Republic of Congo and the Mennonite Brethren Church in Malawi. And a very significant piece is that Mennonite World Conference is anticipating a possible name change. Uh, you can see the proposal they're working with there, Anabaptist Mennonite World Communion. Uh, that won't be decided until 2025, but it's the idea of enlarging who is part of this community with the feeling that Mennonite alone is too uh, limiting. What else happens at a Mennonite World Conference? Spaces are created for community building. As I mentioned, we were welcomed by the Margo Kerzo congregation, which is a GITJ congregation. The church was founded by the son of the first Mennonite missionaries there from the Netherlands. The Mennonite churches in Indonesia are the oldest non-European Mennonite churches in the world, with Dutch Mennonite uh, missionaries going there in the 1850s and creating communities built around agriculture and the Christian faith in a predominantly Muslim context. I mentioned that the work of MWC continues through commissions and other MWC entities all throughout the year. The key commissions are the Deacons, Faith and Life, Mission and Peace Commissions. There's also work, as you can see here, in a number of different areas. The Creation Care Task Force is taking on significant energy uh, in Mennonite World Conference, and the Renewal 2028 uh, program has been holding annual events since 2017. Another thing that happens at Mennonite World Conference Assemblies is, is experiencing the wonder of God's creation. Uh, I took this photo on one of the outings that we took with our satellite location group. You can see uh, terracing, you can see rice paddies, the wonder of God's natural uh, creation. The island of Java is the most populous island in the world. 145 million people live on a relatively small island. Uh, or, or the, that's over half of the total population of Indonesia. And if you're interested in reading more about Central Java and the area we were on the north coast of Central Java, the July issue of National Geographic has a, an article called Sinking Fast, 
which is about how the land there is sinking, and of course seas are rising, communities are becoming uh, inundated. So if you're interested in reading more about the general area where Mennonites are in Indonesia, have a look at that. MWC's mission uh, is about creating a global community, facilitating relationships, and also relating to other Christian world communions, creating spaces for connection, spaces for radical hospitality. MWC serves as a convener to bring people together, global voices from around the world. What else happens at Mennonite World Conference Assemblies? Well, you get an up-close look at the church in action. Uh, this image is from a community we visited called Tempur. Uh, you can see on your left a GITJ church, a Mennonite church, and the large imposing building on the right is a mosque. So in this community, a Mennonite church and a mosque are directly across a narrow street uh, from each other, and there are fascinating stories of which Judy will relate some related to Christians and Muslims in dialogue uh, in Indonesia, and so I'll let her say more about that. One interesting thing about this community, the church is referred to as the little brother in the community, and the mosque is referred to as the big brother. Uh, and they do things together, they do quite a bit together, including uh, burying their dead. So what exactly is MWC? It's more than this global assembly that happens once every six years. We saw these activities that go on uh, through networks and uh, commissions, etc. Um, one of the things that rises to the surface for me is these spaces that MWC creates for people to connect. Uh, Walter Brueggemann uh, prefers to translate the biblical con concept of steadfast love as tenacious solidarity. And that's what I think we're engaging in when we're together in this global Anabaptist family of faith. What happens at MWC assemblies? Well, we learn about the history of the church from new angles. I mentioned Tulungu Wulung, who was a, a Javanese mystic who lived from 1800 to 1885. Uh, and he related to some of the earliest Mennonite missionaries and in fact helped to plant Mennonite churches and implant them in the Javanese culture. Uh, the photo here is Nelson Crable, uh, Elvin's brother, outgoing president of Mennonite World Conference, and Pastor Penta Costafani. Listen to his name again. His name is Penta Costafani, uh, based from Pentecost. And he's the pastor of the local GITJ Margot Kerto congregation. Uh, and we're at the grave of Tungu Wuling, a, rever a revered figure in the history of the Anabaptist churches in Indonesia. We learn together. Uh, as part of the MWC community. We have gifts to give and we have gifts to receive and that's part of the beauty of Mennonite World Conference and the way it brings us together. What happens at Mennonite World Conference Assembly? We get to build relationships with people from around the world. Uh, this next photo here is an image of my little group from my satellite location on our bus. And just in this little snapshot, you have people from India, Canada, Kenya, Tanzania, Costa Rica, Bolivia, Colombia, and the United States. This little microcosm of this global Anabaptist faith community. The first MWC assembly was held in Switzerland in 1925, and this is what that group looked like. The global church looks very, very different uh, today. Uh, and so how do we build on this heritage, but also work toward renewal and the future of the Anabaptist movement globally. We will have that opportunity in 2025. 
the centennial of Mennonite World Conference, the quincentennial of the Anabaptist movement. There will be gatherings in both Switzerland and Germany in 2025 to commemorate that history, but also and especially to look to the future of the global Anabaptist movement. So finally, what happens at MWC assemblies? Well, we sometimes have encounters with people we didn't expect. Uh, this is a Muslim couple. Uh, we were having breakfast on one of my last days in Indonesia, and up they cycled on their bicycles, and I liked, Ann and I liked to bicycle as well, so I was unable to engage them in some conversation around the love of cycling and this bridge building that we do uh, as we build community, this global connecting. And so finally, looking ahead, um, MWC's work is ongoing through volunteers and staff all around the world. These commissions and caucuses and task forces and networks were engaging in this tenacious solidarity uh, as a global Anabaptist community of faith. And at the end of our time together, Reverend Desalin Abebe, who is the president of the MKC, invited us all in six years to Ethiopia for the next uh, 18th MWC assembly. Uh, in Indonesia, which will happen in 2028. And the MKC is the largest Anabaptist church in the world. So the movement continues. You're part of it. And I want to also express uh, the gratitude of Mennonite World Conference for the support uh, over the years of uh, East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church in a whole variety of ways. Thank you. Please turn to number uh, 779, 779. Uh, you heard the song actually playing during the video, and uh, it was a, also a popular song uh, at the World Conference. And please stand if you're able.
Well, many of you have had the chance to participate in a Mennonite World Conference Assembly, especially in 2015 when we hosted it here in Harrisburg at the Farm Show Complex. And you know that one of the most exciting feelings is just being part of a large crowd of people from all around the world. Uh, I remember at the Farm Show Complex the feeling of walking down that hallway and just seeing those streams of people coming toward me from all over the world and occasionally seeing someone that I hadn't seen for a long time or that I knew in another context and so there were reunions happening as well. Meeting and learning to know members of our broader church family from lots of different places is one of the gifts of Mennonite World Conference assemblies. But another gift, just as precious, and Bruce already referred to this, is learning to know the churches that are hosting the assembly. Of course, in 2015, those churches were us, so we didn't exactly have that experience. But one exciting part of attending the assembly in Indonesia for me was connecting with sisters and brothers from the Indonesian churches. And for me, that happened in several ways. There was, of course, the actual assembly itself, those five days of meetings and workshops of living and eating together with lots of different folks. And since my role at the assembly was coordinating the workshops, many of those conversations were with people leading workshops or with other assembly staff, local staff, who were around either translating or taking care of logistics. But I also took the opportunity of adding on some additional connection points. The first of these was something that's known as Assembly Scattered, a chance to visit one congregation for the weekend before the assembly. I was able to visit the Banyatoo con congregation located on the northeastern coast of the island of Java. I shared something about being in Banyatoo with the children in Sunday school two weeks ago. It's a congregation that started in 1861, so about 20 years before East Chestnut Street was started. And it was started by the person that Bruce referred to, the Indonesian mystic, Ibrahim Tungal Wulum. His vision was to create Christian communities, and he started Banyatoo Village in a place where no one was living at that time. It's a fishing village now of about 3,000 people, and about half of those are members of the Mennonite church in Banyatoo. So it's a large church. I also joined a tour following the assembly that was led by a Mennonite pastor from the city of Japara exploring interfaith dynamics in the Japara region. That tour group of 14 international visitors spent time visiting and interacting with staff and students at a Muslim Pasandran, a boarding school, with people at a Hindu ashram or temple, and with a Buddhist congregation of Vihara. And we also visited two Mennonite churches, one of which is Tempur, you saw a picture from Bruce, located in the highest village on Muria Mountain, the central mountain in that region. And in the course of these visits and conversations, I learned a lot from Indonesian Mennonites. In today's lectionary reading, 
we're readings, we're given what is basically some practical advice. The writer of Hebrews reminds readers to be hospitable and charitable in their dealings with each other and with everyone following the example of Jesus. And in the Gospel of Luke, we hear Jesus admonishing his listeners to give way to others, to act with humility, and to serve those who can't repay in kind. I'm used to being part of the dominant culture. I assume most of the time when I'm here at home that I can act in the way I want to, that I can go where I want to, that I don't have to worry about how people will respond to me, I assume that when I speak, people will understand me. I assume that a public place is a space I'm welcome in and entitled to be in. I can do those things without being particularly aware of them because I assume that I belong. It's only when I talk with someone for whom that isn't the case, someone perhaps who isn't white or someone who isn't English speaking, that I become aware of how much I take for granted. Indonesian Mennonites know what it's like to live as a minority. Indonesia is the fourth most populous country in the world, and it's the largest Muslim-majority country in the world. Christians there are a small minority, and they have sometimes been the recipients of violence as a result. Indonesia does have many religions. I said that my tour group met with Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists, and there are other religious groups as well. But by far the dominant religion that shapes much of the culture in Indonesia is Islam. As part of the volunteer staff of the assembly, my role was to be the on-site coordinator of workshops. By the way, in the photo that Bruce showed, I was wearing my beautiful hot pink volunteer t-shirt. <laughs> the, the top I'm wearing today was uh, the fabric that was made into, into jackets for all the coordinators and local staff. Um, so I was the coordinator for workshops. Each afternoon of the assembly, one of the possible activities people could choose was to attend workshops. There were two workshop sessions every afternoon. Each one had eight or nine workshops running at a time. And my role included helping people find their locations, connecting workshop presenters with tech help if they needed it, making sure translators were in place, changing rooms if we needed to because of size of groups, it kept me busy. Anyone coming to the assembly could offer to lead a workshop. And there were workshops led by presenters from many different countries on many different subjects. But in every session, there was at least one workshop presented by someone from Indonesia focusing on their experiences living with Muslim neighbors, on how to welcome others different from yourself on following Jesus and living in peace. One of the most interesting workshops was a presentation by Paulus Hartono, a pastor from the town of Solo, and joining him in the presentation was the commander of the local organization of Hezbollah, a Muslim paramilitary organization. He came dressed in a commander 
um, kind of a military uniform. And they talked about the ways the Mennonite Church in Solo and the Hezbollah organization collaborate to make peace. Here's the backstory. Solo is the location of some of the most radical Islamic groups in Indonesia. Traditionally, Islam as practiced in Indonesia was peaceful and tolerant of differences. In fact, that's the Indonesian national slogan to accept everyone. But there are also outside influences and funding coming from Saudi Arabia in recent years has encouraged militarization and radicalization of Islam. In Solo, in the early 2000s, this growing radicalization came to a head. There were disturbances in which local churches were burned and pastors were attacked. And in response, Paulos Hartono, the Mennonite pastor, reached out to leaders of various faith groups in the city. They started with breakfast meetings, just with discussion focused on how they could make Solo a peaceful city for everyone. And over time, the relationship between Paulus and the Hezbollah commander strengthened. Then in 2004, as you may remember, there was a tsunami that devastated the Indonesian community of Banda Aceh. The Mennonite churches wanted to respond, but they also knew that that was a pretty conservative Muslim community that might be suspicious of these Christians coming to help. So they did what Jesus tells us to do in his parable. They invited somebody unexpected. They asked Hezbollah from Solo to join them in a collaborative relief and recovery effort. There were challenges, of course. These are two different communities with two different kinds of expectations about lifestyle, about all kinds of things. But the collaboration continued. And these days, those groups work together doing peace training for members of the churches, of Hezbollah, of many other communities in Solo and in the region around it. This is a remarkable story, and I've only touched on the main points of it. But I heard many others as well. Bruce mentioned the village of Tempur, where the Mennonite church is directly across the street from a large mosque. And the leaders of both of those communities described their relationships, the way they share life together. On Christmas and Easter, the Muslim congregation joins the Mennonite church for celebration meals. And the Mennonites join the Muslim congregation to celebrate the feast of Eid at the end of the Ramadan fast. And they join together to hold the seven days of mourning that are required after someone has died. They value each other as friends and neighbors, and in fact, when the church was trying to get legal permission to build their church building, it was the leader of the mosque who vouched for them with the authorities. That might be where they get the, the saying that they are the younger brother and the mosque is the elder brother. But that wasn't an isolated example either. I heard repeated stories like this, ways in which the Mennonite churches in Indonesia 
have earned the respect of their Muslim neighbors and built bridges across barriers. Of course, not everything is always sweetness and light. There are still differences. And the churches are very aware of their minority status in the society at large. But in the midst of a setting in which they are the ones without power or status, in which the dominant society's beliefs and practices are very different from theirs, the, church, the churches in Indonesia are able to live as witnesses to Jesus' way of peace. We naturally tend to read the Bible assuming that it's speaking to people like us, living in similar circumstances. But in fact, the letter to the Hebrews is written to folks whose lives were a lot more like those of the Mennonites in Indonesia, people who lived as a minority in the midst of a larger, more powerful society. People like that who don't have power in an obvious way are the ones being told to reach out, to welcome strangers, to care for those in prison, to rely on God and share what they have. Or to echo the words of Jesus we heard earlier, not to exalt themselves, but at the same time to welcome those who aren't the obvious and expected guests. The Indonesian churches, as the hosts of the MWC assembly, set the theme for the assembly. And you've seen the theme on our bulletin. It was following Jesus together across barriers. The barriers we face may not be the same as the ones they do. But the Indonesian Mennonites I met stand for me as examples I can learn from. People who live in the midst of challenges, as a minority in a sometimes hostile environment, their example challenges me to also find ways to follow Jesus across barriers. Join me in prayer. Lord, thank you for the ways you lead us. Thank you for brothers and sisters around the world who can teach us about living as your followers. Show us how we may be called to follow you across barriers and help us this day to do some work of peace for you. Amen. So we're going to end our time of reporting and reflecting with a song that we enjoyed singing at the assembly. It's called Geta Geta. Uh, it's an Ethiopian song, and it's very fitting that we sing it since the next assembly, as Bruce said, will be uh, in Ethiopia, hosted by the Masoreti Christos Church. The song is printed in your bulletin, but we are going to sing it together with the MWC assembly via a video clip. And the words will also be displayed on the screen. So you can follow along with this, or uh, you can follow along with the screen, whatever is easiest for you. We'll first, on the clip, we'll first hear Tigis Tesfaya from Ethiopia explain how we move as we